In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. In this episode, we interview Betsy Dettiri. Betsy is the founding director of the Trauma Recovery Centre, a charity that offers therapy and alternative education to children and young people who have been impacted by trauma. Betsy is a psychotherapist with over 20 years' experience working with vulnerable children, young people and adults. She is also a trained primary school teacher. This combination of education and psychotherapy has led her expertise in the area of trauma support for children and families. Betsy has authored two books, Teaching the Child on the Trauma Continuum and The Simple Guide to Child Trauma, What It Is and How to Help. Both books are written particularly for teachers and caring adults supporting traumatised children and they provide complex information in an easy to read and understandable format. So welcome, Betsy, to our podcast. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if we were chatting before I pressed record, and I'd <laughs> like to start with what we were chatting about so I, so I don't forget. Could you just tell us about your therapeutic mentoring rooms? Yeah, sure. So I do. I run, a, I run several organisations, um, but the therapeutic mentoring rooms concept came out of having run the trauma recovery center charity where we see about a hundred children um, in one of our centers, the, the HQ per week coming in for therapy or alternative education. And I just found that some of the children that were coming, um, our local government were paying vast amounts of money on sending them in taxis which I find very untrauma informed. I don't know if you do that over there, but these little vulnerable kids were being put in taxis with an unknown taxi driver, sometimes driving an hour to come to our center for an hour of play therapy, which whilst it's brilliant therapy that we offer um, and it does work, I found it very disconcerting that they were in a taxi for two hours often with someone they didn't know. Yeah. So to try and resolve that, I thought, why don't I train up people in, in the school? So uh, I kind of have this theory that psychotherapists are a little bit like doctors and consultants. Right, um, yep. If you do like a one or two day trauma course, you can become a first aider in, in trauma. Um, a lot of schools are doing that now, which is fantastic. And, um, but there's sort of kind of a missing thing in the middle. So I invented a 14-day course called the Therapeutic Mentoring Certificate, which is essentially to rise up people as um, trauma nurses, uh -huh. exactly like the medical world. And so this 14-day course, uh, I ended up with a lot of teachers, a lot of education staff. Head, I've got three head teachers right now doing it. Um, and they were coming and going, but how do we take this back to our schools? So 
we've started therapeutic mentoring rooms where there is a physical actual room in the, these mainstream schools that choose to opt into this uh, partnership and the rooms look very similar to our therapy rooms here so they're very they've got big colorful bean bags and um you know they're just lovely rooms um full of sensory kit and, and that kind of thing they don't look like classrooms and then our therapeutic mentors who have done the 14-day course work with the children there um, in a in a different way to us as therapists um, but the therapy we have trauma-informed therapists from my team that will go in six times a year and write treatment plans do assessments of their most traumatized children write treatment plans give the treatment plans to the therapeutic mentor to do Oh, I see. Yep. And then they get clinical supervision every six weeks. So it means that, for example, little eight-year-old boy was coming here for therapy one hour a week at a cost to the local authority of hundreds of pounds a week. And I just went, instead, could he have breakfast with you, therapeutic mentor, one hour every day where you just play with Play-Doh and chat about how he's doing? So every day he gets an hour. Um, with a therapeutic mentor who who is doing activities that are being suggested by a therapist um, and if there's any problem if anything rises up then we we are here the teacher can talk to us um, but we're seeing fantastic outcomes really fantastic outcomes children that were going to be excluded are no longer excluded um, and kids are already building on the relationship they've already got with a member of staff within school and they don't have to travel out <laughs> yeah that, that's wonderful so I'm just trying to think of that relating that to our contact text yep. so yep. are you situated um, like obviously within driving distance to the schools that you service um, yes we are yes yeah yeah, yeah. so I've got team all over the UK because right. I've, got in the UK. I've got team over the UK so they're the same team right um, and those team would be able to go visit, um, but they're very available because they give clinical supervision to the team do the treatment and assess every child. So a clinical assessment is taken every six weeks of each child. So we've got really good data um, of the changes. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, that's wonderful, isn't it? Um, could you yeah. just tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to working with children, young people and adults who've been impacted by trauma? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I kind of have always had this fascination with, with it, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually trained as a teacher and a psychotherapist at the same time. At I'm 45, so back then you couldn't, there was no internet, so you couldn't find courses particularly easily. And there were very few places to train to be an ed psych. Um, you know, to be an ed psych, you had to do education for five years first anyway. Um, yes. And to be a child psychotherapist didn't exist. Couldn't do it. So I thought this was the best way of being with kids um, and helping kids and getting to know kids. And I loved being a classroom teacher. Um, in a is try and work out how to help the kids that are troubled um, and misunderstood and just not flourishing. In your book, uh, Teaching the Child on the Trauma Continuum, you write about mm -hmm. the importance of thinking about trauma in terms of a continuum. Can you just um, explain for us in a little bit more detail why that's important? I think, I think it's absolutely vital. I think I sit in too many conversations where 
head teachers tell me all their children are traumatized um, and you know how can I be pointing out one in particular um, so I kind of draw a line wherever I go and say well you know let's look at the difference in in terms of trauma symptoms trauma experience and then what environment they're they're in what is their you know parental situation as we look at those three areas I think we can have quite an intelligent discussion on how traumatized they are which leads us to being able to match an appropriate intervention for their level of trauma. Right. So um, over here in the UK, we have various um, attachments become quite a big deal. And we have lots of attachment aware initiatives, which are absolutely brilliant for the first half of the trauma continuum. But for the second half of the trauma continuum, they're more complicated, actually more complicated, same kind of emotional literacy um, understanding and that's the only kind of approach they're given it's a little bit like putting a sticking plaster over somebody's heart which actually needs heart surgery um and it can lead to them feeling increased shame it can feel like failures that it didn't work um and so i'm really passionate about the second half of the trauma continuum those with complex trauma getting the response um, that they need the approach and intervention that they need okay thank you i i re have read it quite a bit as a as a classroom teacher um the saying, what fires together, wires together. So yeah. in the context of trauma, can you just um, yeah. illuminate what that looks like, sounds like and feels like for the classroom teacher? Yeah, okay. So what we recognise is trauma impacts primarily the body and the subconscious. So that's where trauma resides. That's the long-term impact. It resides in the subconscious and the body. And so... A lot of classroom teachers will say to me, well, can you just tell me what these children's triggers are? You know, what are the things that are going to cause them to react in a way that's um, inappropriate or problematic? Um, and I generally laugh and go, well, do you know what yours are? Um, <laughs> our subconscious is really complex. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the difference between a therapeutic mentor or a, or a teaching assistant and a psychotherapist is that we're trained to be able to unpack the subconscious in a way that's very safe. Um, so I, I generally, I tell people a story usually that I've made up, which is yes. of a little boy, um, usually a little boy that, you know, went for a walk with his dog, um, ended up being run over um, and he spilt banana milkshake when he, when the, the car went over his foot and it was all very traumatic and he ended up in hospital. And then many, many, many months later, um, he was happily chatting in the lunch hall when somebody spilt banana milkshake. His response was to uh, run, like just run so fast. And he ended up screaming and yelling as if the car was running over his foot. Um, and he was really embarrassed because he was 10. Um, now, why, why I use that illustration is I explain that for that little chap, there was no cognitive sense of, right, because when I was run over by a foot, it was because I was drinking banana milkshakes. So that's going to be all entangled in my head. So every time I see a banana milkshake, I might get frightened. There was no cognitive understanding of it because what fires together, wires together. So when he was having his foot run over, uh -huh. he... Um, the sensory neurons all fired off in his head were the smell of banana milkshake, the sound of the car, the, the feeling of terror, the, the feeling of pain in his foot. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the smell of the dog or the, the sense of his dog being near. And all of those would have fired off in his head at the same time. And then they wire together, they entangle together in the subconscious. And so 
you know, it could, it, he could have equally screamed and yelled and had a trauma response if he'd, I don't know, seen a dog at the same time as had a headache because the, the sense of pain and dog might have triggered a, a similar response of um, a flashback of what happened to him with his foot. Um, so I explained that, you know, the smell of banana milkshake was a sensory memory that was held in his subconscious, which, rem which remembered the accident, which caused him to have a physiological response of pain. And that's, we, we would call that a flashback, uh -huh. um, but a with a sensory experience that you can't control, that you can't be cognitive about. You can't say silly me, don't be ridiculous. It's, I'm, you know, I'm nowhere near a car. It's banana yeah. milkshake. Because our, our subconscious doesn't make much sense very often. No. And that makes, that makes it really tricky, doesn't it, for the teacher to then identify what the, tr yeah. the trigger may have been because there's no logical sense to what's happening in front of them to try and, you know, Absolutely. help the child, yeah. Yeah, really, really tough. And tough for the kids too because they equally don't know. They're freaked out themselves. They're embarrassed. Yeah, really frightened, yeah. And they don't know why they did it. And, and unless we teach children about the subconscious and how that works, um, they can feel just terrified by themselves and their own responses, which is why the response from an adult at that point, whatever background the adult is, has to be empathetic, kind, and curious and not furious, and just really gentle and reaffirming that it's okay. You know, it's okay. Don't worry. You're not mad. You're not bad. <laughs> We're just having a response, which is a trauma response, and that can really help. Yes, because it'd be just terrifying, wouldn't it? To be, yeah, no control yeah. whatsoever. It would be just yeah. super yeah. scary. Yeah. Um, but so many kids are like that. So many kids are at the moment running out of classrooms, and they don't know why. And the, yes. first, the first question the teacher generally says is, "Why did you do that?" And really, what the child is doing is they're they're wanting to look adult going why did I do this <laughs> help help I, I don't them. know yeah <laughs> but we um, tend to ask them. yeah we're finding too um one of the um behavior teams in our local area here um are finding that uh, in general to generalization mm -hmm. the um there's a lot more of that type of behavior occurring in our younger grades in our early years in our yeah. really little people um, yeah. yeah, running and being yeah. very lost and frightened. Yeah, little people. Yeah, oh. so awful. It must. Be. And the problem is, we then, you know, professionals will often question why their behaviour is escalating. Well, if you end up doing something, whether that's suddenly screaming or having a temper tantrum publicly or running out and, and hiding or hiding under a table or hitting somebody or being aggressive. And then afterwards you go, why did I do that? And there's no one to tell you why you did it. There's no one to explain that actually that's a, a response to fear. You, you end up being so frightened yourself that of course your behavior is going to escalate because you feel so powerless and so terrified, which is trauma. Yes, yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you, one of the two adaptive responses is dis yeah. dissociation. Yeah. So in that state of being, the trauma symptoms are not usually easily noticeable. Yeah. So what are some of the behaviours that are indicative of dissociation? Mm. 
well again dissociation has a lovely continuum <laughs> yes it does so, um, yeah so most social workers if i'm honest so in well definitely in the uk would refer to dissociation as glazing over and daydreaming right which is true but it's true on like the first quarter of the of the dissociative continuum um and and you know again we would discuss that mild dissociation is an adaptive normal behavior it's something that we all do when we're driving or watching a film or something and that's okay um, but dissociation is is also a, a way of coping with unrelenting traumatic experiences and it's a form of shutting down it's a form of fragmenting um, and so it's a complex internal system it's a complex internal response to terror and powerlessness and essentially what it does is it fragments and leads to confusion and chaos internally uh-huh. which in a, in a I don't know under eight-year-old would present um, potentially is occasionally glazing over and daydreaming but yeah. the majority of the time the the giveaway this the the things that we'd go oh what's that would be the fact that the child would present differently at different times so for example you'd have an eight-year-old that one day is a maths loving uh, normal little eight-year-old and then the next second for no apparent reason again because we understand the triggers aren't necessarily logical yeah uh, she's suddenly rocking in the corner sucking her thumb like a baby wetting herself right and then the next thing it maybe is is very verbally articulate um and very kind of wise for her age and mature for her age and then the next minute goes i, I have no idea what you're talking about i'm i i've never wet myself i've never been like a baby and that, that different presentations and different ways of presenting uh, publicly are her different parts, her different ego states, her different, um, we, we, I often talk to the children about buckets. Uh-huh. And I'll say, you have um, a muddy bucket and a golden shiny bucket. Uh, and in your golden shiny bucket, you've got all the happy things, the, the lovely moments, the stickers, the rewards, the friend going, I want, I want to choose you, those happy moments. And then in the muddy bucket, you've got all the stuff that's hard to deal with, all the stuff that's difficult, and you just feel pained by it. You stick it in your bucket. And, uh, you know, if your bucket is full, it begins to leak, and your leaky behavior is being grumpy or irritable or being a bit spiky or sharp or you know maybe being a bit aggressive uh-huh. when children have been significantly traumatized they have one muddy bucket that gets too full and then it leaks and so their behavior begins to cause them to have less love and less nurture and less kindness and less empathy because they just seem to be told off all the time okay. so they often create another bucket and then another bucket and each bucket holds uh, different memories different experiences, different feelings, different ways of being. Uh, and then I interlink that with another metaphor, which is the daisy theory. Um, well, that's I good because I was going to ask you about the daisy theory. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I would say that each bucket is like a daisy petal. It's a different, it's a different um, holding bay for emotions and memories and experiences. So um, we usually start with talking about the buckets. And then when somebody does begin to show real evidence that they're highly dissociative we then do what I call the daisy with them Uh, and we've got hundreds of children around the country here that we're doing the daisy with uh, where basically uh, we we draw a daisy 
and the middle circle we will say is their ANP, their apparently normal part, which is um, comes from the dissociate structural dissociation theory of Nighthouse, Steele, and Van der Hart. Um, and we will that's their normal presenting part, their apparently normal part. Mm-hmm. And then we will map out all their petals, um, and they'll begin to to acknowledge really that maybe they've got a baby petal that sometimes. You know, like the story I just said, you know, wets themselves and sucks their thumb for no reason. Uh, and maybe they've got an older part and maybe they've got a maths loving part and maybe they've got a part that's actually really um, aggressive. Or maybe they've got a part that um, is just really sad and really maybe suicidal and desperate. And um, so somewhere in the middle of the, tra- of the dissociative continuum, yeah. those kids will be aware of those parts. When they get to the other end, the furthest end of the continuum, they won't be aware of those parts because they'll actually have pathological amnesia. They'll, they'll not be aware that those parts exist. And that's when kids often are told that they're lying. They'll literally go, you know, did you do that behavior? The child will go, no, because they can't remember it because it's a different part of them that did it. Um, and then they're told that they're lying, but actually they can't remember. No, they truly can't remember, no. can they? No. no. Not at all, no. I've got a little eight-year-old girl that was here a few years ago and she was sexually abused from birth and um, she ended up uh, having some sexualized behavior and quite often in the classroom she would suddenly sort of put her hand up the teacher's skirt or try to or do something like that. And, um, you know, that would generally lead to her then feeling quite terrified that she did it because it would shock her. Uh, and then she'd end up sort of having a big meltdown, a tantrum, um, and just losing a plot. And then by the time she managed to recover, and sadly they would often have to restrain her and do all sorts of, you know, really unpleasant things. Eventually she'd be dragged to the head teacher's office where the head would go, why did you put your hand up her skirt? Why did you do that? And she would stand there and just go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't do it. She didn't do it to an extent. It was another part of her that did it. Um, so, you know, that when, she, when this little girl was able to understand her disease, she was able to have the language to explain to the adults around her that, she, yes, she takes full responsibility. It's not a way to avoid that, but it's another part of her that has different responses and ways of, of responding to triggers and pain and fear. Yeah, and that's so, so important, isn't it, for them to be able to name their feelings and understand them because mm-hmm. when we keep doling out the punitive consequences, it's yeah. just, yeah, it just doesn't work, does it? It's just no. not fair, and it's not fair. It's, yeah, causes more shame. Yeah. Which escalates the behaviour and causes them to be more socially withdrawn and mm. isolated, which, you know, just causes more trauma. Yes. Yeah. So the Daisy theory is just a, a way of helping children that feel very overwhelmed by their behaviours, their emotions, and their responses. It's kind of a way of containing it in a way that feels very normal to them. Mm. It's just a simple containing way. So we do lots of cutting out petals. In some weeks we have to staple on another petal. Oh, um, and it's such a lovely image because it's such a lovely flower. It's such a happy flower. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's that's yeah. great. Can you just give us a few? You've probably got hundreds, I know, but some key strategies for teachers mm-hmm. for supporting students who have been affected by trauma. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think I think the key thing really is being attuned. 
I just think, you know, I'm a trainer and I train all over the place and I have to be attuned to my, the people I'm training. So I have to notice when they start to look tired and they need a break. I have to notice when I haven't let them talk enough. So actually they're just trying to retain all the information I'm giving them and they haven't had a chance to kind of embed it by them chatting and discussing. And I have to notice if it's near lunchtime and actually they're just hungry. And I have to notice when, when, you know, maybe they've taken up too much information and they, they need to get into groups and, and go outside and chat. And, you know, as a trainer, that's what keeps them listening. And if I'm not attuned, I'll have, you know, half of them asleep in the room and <laughs> half of them not listening and zoned out somewhere. Um, so being attuned as a trainer is vital. And I would argue that that's exactly the same as being a teacher. When you're attuned, you, you know, you're aware when one child in the corner is actually just staring out the window. You, you, you're attuned that there's a, you know, there's a little gaggle of girls that are actually being really nasty to each other. and, and if you're aware even with 30 in the class you, you know you know what's going on and you pick up the vibe and I think as a student teacher you can respond to that and you can go quick let's all jump up let's all jump up let's just do our spaghetti and we can you know do exercises like that where you know just normal brain gym exercises and physical exercises that cause the endorphins to run again and just just break the tension or break the boredom or break the hard work or break the, the whatever's going on to, yeah. to slightly change the atmosphere. And I think when you can be attuned to the needs of your kids, you've got a happy class. So I would argue that attunement is most important. A lot of schools go, give me the strategies, give me the strategies. And I'm like, what if you understand attunement? <laughs> yes. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. So yes. strategies on their own can you know that if you're not attuned it's I don't know it's like being a, a parent that's not attuned and you know your child needs to feed three times a day and you just kind of feed them food but there's no sense of wow let's it's time for food let's let's find food that you like and food. it's just like food here it is you know this all the strategies only work in the context of attuned relationship um, that's my big thing. Uh -huh. No, that's yeah, very, very good to know. What do you think are the biggest challenges for these students at school? Or maybe the biggest challenge? Um, I think the biggest challenge is that they so are dependent on relationship, uh, both peer relationship um, and also a relationship with a trusted adult. And yet very often their behaviours are the very behaviours that push them away from having relationship. And I think that frustration, that conflict of the absolute, they, they know deep inside that they're desperate for friends and they're desperate for to please the teacher. They're desperate to have that sense of satisfaction that the teacher's pleased with them. But yet they, they know that they're doing behaviour that is, is pushing children away and, and causing them not to be invited to parties and um, frustrating their teachers that their teacher just doesn't like them. And I think that relationship thing, we know that relationships are their key to healing, key to recovery, and yet they're the very thing that children struggle with the most very often. What yeah. are you currently curious about with regards to children, young people and adults with trauma? 
I'm so curious about so many things. <laughs> oh, so, so many things. If only I had another five lives, I'd be doing five PhDs at the same time to try yeah. and work out more of this stuff. I feel like, I do feel like this is the answer for the nations. I really do. And, you know, some would call me biased, but I think if we can work out how to appropriately intervene when a child has been traumatized and help them recover, we will change communities we will change families we will change our government finance we will change the pressure on the on the mental health system we'll change the pressure on the criminal justice system we will literally change the world if we can crack this how to help a child recover from trauma i think it is the issue um, that we need to find and so i think there's so many things that i'm curious about so many so many things um in such I guess little often, time <laughs> yeah indeed i guess one of the things i'm fascinated in is because we've only just started this therapeutic mentoring rooms in the last year and a half and, that was a new idea. and um you know just the concept of having um therapeutic mentors as kind of nurses instead of um just reliant on the psychotherapists um, I, I, I'm fascinated in how that's going to go. I really am fascinated on how, whether we're going to run into a problem at some point or not, because um, it's so new. Um, but I'm really hoping we're not, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get them into every school um, and that they become an all, the new normal, really. Just like dyslexia wasn't understood when I was training as a teacher. Um, it was seen as one in a you know one in a million child had it, and we weren't really trained on it and didn't understand. No, it. no, we weren't trained with um, about yeah. children with autism spectrum disorder either. You know, Absolutely. it wasn't a thing in the nineteen seventies. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I was nineteen nineties trained, and I had one morning on dyslexia where we had to read yeah. a, an OHP in Chinese, and everyone the, the lecturer said, "Do you can you read it?" And I was like, "No." So that's what it's like for a dyslexic child. And that was it. That's that was all I it. Got. Move on. <laughs> it's yeah, very helpful yeah exactly whereas you know and I definitely used to think that meant that they weren't intelligent you know there was no concept then that actually you can have highly intelligent people like Einstein that can be dyslexic yes absolutely you know, yes we've done so much in the last you know 10 20 years yes um, and now, now we know that if we help children with dyslexia we can see them become like Einstein we can see them become some of our creative geniuses and we just need to give them a bit of extra support in one particular area and we just need to assess what that area is and it's just quite simple now it's quite obvious um, and I would love trauma to be the same I would to love it obvious and it was obvious it was like well you know let's quickly look at the trauma continuum you know where do they where do they see it what intervention is appropriate quick let's let's provide that because that we know that even if doing one-on-one -on -one now when they're seven or eight is going to cost us money for a couple of years we know that long term that's going to save us money in terms of their um, ability to contribute positively to society, their lack of need of the adult mental health system and their lack of possibility of entering into the criminal justice system. You know, this is worth money worth spending on one-on-one -on -one now. And I think if we can crack that, then, then, you know, I'm happy. We're all happy. Good days ahead. <laughs> Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been really, really great. That was Betsy Dettiri, psychotherapist from the UK. Thank you for listening. See you next time.